0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Faith Presbyterian. Yeah, Good morning to you. Uh, first off, I want to say, obviously, I'm not Mike, so uh, let's keep him in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, so you guys know, he's traveling. Uh, let's think about him and his family, that they'll have a good time seeing their daughter and have a, a safe trip back to us. So I'm sure you guys are looking forward to him getting back to his series. I think everyone here, I know, and you know me, but I know we have some uh, new members that have joined and lots of, lots of visitors. So I want to introduce myself and my families here. So my name is Ryan Buchanan. Me and my wife, Megan, believe it or not, have been going here, if you go all the way back to when we started visiting, for about five years. It's hard to believe all those Bible studies have been that long ago, Danny. It's really flown by. Uh, Me and Megan were just dating at the time, and we felt like right off the bat, really, really early in, this is the church that we want to be part of. This is the church family we wanted to serve with and worship with. Uh, but it was important that we uh, do this as a family so we waited until January uh, 2019 we were married and uh, first thing we did as a family is join this church it was a a great decision we we, uh, thank God for leading us here and he saw fit to increase our family and in December 2020 Eleanor Ruth came and uh, a few months later she was baptized into this church so she's a covenant child and that's a special time for anyone but especially someone that comes from a non-reformed background as me and peter were talking about earlier uh, just going with the pastor and the elders and them explaining that process and realizing it and uh, the covenants that god made to us and our children and uh taking those vows and a lot of you guys were present there and taking those with us that we're gonna set a good example for her and pray for her that in hopes that one day she will embrace faith that was a it was a special thing and uh so we love you guys, and it was just another incident that uh, just, I guess, knit our hearts even closer together with this church. So we're we're very happy to be here. And if any of y'all are good at math, that means she's a full blown toddler now. So any tantrums, hear glass breaking, small explosion—it's her. But uh, Megan does a great job with her. I think after this, she's gonna start charming cobras or something, because so I think that's that's easier than getting a toddler to listen to you. <laughs> So I mentioned I'm from a non-reformed background, and I was talking with Peter how I started reading the confession way before I ever come to a church like this, and it just made sense to me, and I started looking at those, what I call proof texts, and why do they believe what they do? And it made so much sense to me, and there's a few books that you kind of get intimate with if you're in the Reformed faith. For example, Ephesians and Romans, um, just full of those proof texts I was talking about of like things uh, that we were really strong in in our faith, like doctrines of grace, Well, the book of Hebrews is where we're going to be today, chapter 13. I did not have a lot of experience with Hebrews. And uh, it's a good while ago, Danny invited me to his house for a Bible study through the book of Hebrews. And so many things just made sense after that Bible study. Uh, What those other books were for the doctrines of grace for me, this was for covenant theology. Um, Some of the questions I had were answered like, uh, what is the relationship of the old covenant to the new? How does the new church relate to the old church? How does Christ relate to the old covenant? Uh, how did he fulfill it? What is my relationship with Abraham? That's even covered in there. So it was a great book, and uh, I've read through it many times. I was reading through it again when Danny contacted me and asked if I would fill in for Mike. And so I was at the end, chapter 13. It's always been a fascinating book, um, but also a chapter. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to do a little deeper dive into this, see kind of what I can find, read after some commentators, see what these verses are referring to elsewhere, and I'll see what I find, and I'll come and kind of present it to you today. So we're just going to do a little Bible study of Hebrews 13. So I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get started, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our great trained God. We come before you in praise and worship for your greatness and holiness, your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your provision this week, for bringing your people together today. Thank you for your word, our ability to tangibly hold it, to read it and meet around it in peace. We come before you this morning, we're painfully aware of our inadequacies. We're all inadequate to teach and preach, to comprehend and apply your word without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Please illuminate your word for us, that we may know more about it. And bless this time as well as the worship service. May we leave here today, knowing we have experienced your presence and worshiped in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm not going to bore you guys with a big, long overview. I'm just going to do like a little paragraph just to kind of get you started. If you had not read Hebrews in a little bit, just let you know kind of uh, what it's about and some of the themes real quick, and then I'll, uh, I'll read this chapter in its entirety, and then we're just going to go through it and look, look at it individually. So the author of Hebrews, he doesn't name himself or designate his specific audience. The traditional assumption of the title Hebrews is that the original recipients were Jewish Christians. So although several names have been attributed to authoring the book of Hebrews, the prevailing consensus throughout church history has been the author of Hebrews has been the Apostle Paul. The author knew his audience, we know that, and he longed to be reunited reunited with them, and we're going to see that at the end of chapter 13. The letter to the Hebrews is thought to be dated somewhere in the first century, and the frequent references to the Jewish sacrificial system that he's dealing with, as if it's a present-day reality, leads many to believe that it was before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So just some quick themes to keep in mind as we go through this chapter that have already been established. Um, I stole this one straight from Danny's Bible study because it's simple enough for me to understand and you can't really expound upon it. The theme of Hebrews is Christ is better. And as you go through it and read, you realize how he's better. It starts off telling you that he's better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He's better than the tabernacle priesthood. And he's even better than the old sacrificial system. Paul often encourages his audience throughout Hebrews to endure trials and persecutions and give many warnings against leaving the faith and returning to those old covenant ways because Christ is better. The audience is encouraged to hold fast to their faith for it is grounded in a far superior revelation, which is Christ the Messiah. But possibly the most beautiful theme in Hebrews is its soteriology, which is a fancy way of saying salvation teaching. The teaching is based in Christ, who became our heavenly high priest, and offered himself as an eternal sacrifice and fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system as a priest, sacrifice, and our atonement. So Christ has triumphantly accomplished our salvation and became the final high priest and atoning sacrifice to which the Old Testament pointed. So sometimes uh, in the New Testament, the last chapter is kind of a summation or a recap of what the, what the book is. But chapter 13 of Hebrews is less of that. It's more of an application of teachings that have preceded. Um, it contains his concluding remarks, just like the other books he authored. But it's also a series of moral exhortations. It's almost as if an outline, because you'll see as we go, it's just straight to the point versus telling you things that you need to do. Some people have said the entire chapter of the theme is sacrifices is pleasing to God, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. It's also been refer, referred to many as just exhortations for your journey. These are just um, great things to just apply to your life and live. So each verse or two will contain uh, instructions and guidance for the audience. It doesn't always seem to follow a theme, but we're going to find that there are some themes in here that go through this chapter, and we're going to talk about them. So I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety, and then we'll just look at the verses individually, and we're going to see how that they, they uh, flow together into the theme that is chapter 13. So Hebrews chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love and money Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul. And those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desire to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my words of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. So let's look at the first two chapters here as this uh, chapter started. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So what is Paul referring to when he talks about brotherly love? Secularly, we think of many types of brotherly love. I have two brothers. I'm sure many of you here do too. That's a special type of love that only brothers understand. And I'm sure uh, sisters feel the same way. Uh, Most of you probably don't know this. I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm I'm a war veteran. And I think of the brotherly love I have with those guys. And uh, that is something that I can't even explain to you if you have not uh, experienced it. That's a type of brotherly love to go through an experience like that with. Uh, but First Corinthians teaches about love, and there's many types. It tells us that faith, hope, and love, out of those the greatest is love. But here in Hebrews 13.1, the word used for love, in our modern translation, is Philadelphia, or fraternal love. Now, he's not referring to the city, of course, Philadelphia, or the wonderful cream cheese that's named after Philadelphia, although cheese might be my love language, but a different type of love. It consists of the Greek word philos, which means love, and adelphos, which means brother. So Paul is referring to brotherly love within the church, the type of love that we all have, we all share. Our relationships within the body of Christ are to be established by this love. Paul emphasized this earlier in his chapter, and we're going to revisit Hebrews a lot because there is, there is some summation in this chapter. In chapter 6, verse 10, he states, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your works and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So when the Greeks used the word Philadelphia to describe love, they were talking about blood kin. Paul here is referring to a more exclusive group, not those who have a kinship by their own blood, but through the blood of Christ. So brotherly love is also to be a badge of us Christians. It's to be our mark, how we're identified. Jesus states in John thirteen thirty five, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then later in chapter 10 and 11 of Hebrews, Paul emphasized that brotherly love is a fruit of the Spirit. So one of the most important ways that we can show this love of Christ is manifesting by loving his bride. So to look back at that, we have Christ telling us that this is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples is that you love each other. And then Paul later says, that's a fruit of the spirit of actually being a convert. So that shows you how important the love of Christ is. Uh, I figure most of you in here have heard of A.W. Pink. He has a, uh, a wonderful quote on this, this verse. He said, let, "...let brotherly love continue, includes the idea of enduring in the face of difficulties and temptations, that which is enjoined is perseverance in a pure and, self, and unselfish affection towards fellow Christians." Brotherly love is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it is not washed or watered, it quickly welts. It is an exotic, for it is not a native of the soul of fallen human nature. That's a very A.W. Pink quote, (laughs) beautifully put. So Paul's statement to let brotherly love continue implies that brotherly love was already occurring and only needed to continue, not be started. Because as we saw before, brotherly love is natural to a Christian, and it's a sign that we are true converts. But love is not just to be a sign, it's to be an action. Back in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, it states, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So can you think of some uh, examples of brotherly love that you've experienced here in the church? I know that can be a personal question, but... Um, I can give you a couple from my own life. I don't mind sharing. I was telling you how earlier we, we joined the church, and just a few months after that, we bought a home. And several people, uh, it must have been the hottest day of the year. It was in early September, came and helped us move. Uh, we had a lot of big stuff we had to move, and people showed up. We didn't even ask them. I guess maybe Danny or someone um, organized that, or the deacons. But I also think about after Eleanor's birth. Um, that was a time when when... COVID was at its worst. That was like the Delta variant. And we didn't have a whole lot of help from our family. We have some elderly family members, some that are dealing with some illnesses that are immune compromised. We're new parents. We have no idea what we're doing. And uh, so many people from the church reached out to us. Danny and Mike came and talked to us. Uh, So many people brought us food. It was just brotherly love that was experienced in the church. And it had an effect on me, and I still remember that today. So uh, I encourage you that are engaging in those type of activities. Continue doing it because you never know what that means to people. But as instructed in this verse, love is not only shown to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 2 states, We are not to neglect those in need that are outside the church. So showing hospitality to strangers is a way Christ manifests brother, or Christians manifest brotherly love. This was of big importance in Paul's day, if you think about the time period he came up in, and the turbulence within the Roman Empire. Traveling was difficult in a hot and treacherous terrain. The routes were dangerous, and travelers were often met with a threat of attacks, bandits... And gangs and wild animals it brings to mind the, the story of the good Samaritan to show love to those outside the group of believers of whom were being oppressed at that time emulated the love and compassion of Christ so think about some ways that we, we can or we have shown brotherly love to the community I think about the budget meeting we had last week and we were talking about the gift we made to the pregnancy care center we'll, we'll probably be in heaven before we know the good that that, that mobile vehicle will do uh, also think about the live stream i know many people may not think about that but most of you may know i'm a, I'm a nurse by trade and the first 16 months of the pandemic i was in a covid icu it's a very stressful and a, a, a terrible experience uh lots of isolation uh, i told you that we had family members that were immunocompromised we couldn't be around a lot i know there's a lot of people here in church that were that way we weren't able to attend a lot and then right in the midst of it eleanor was born so we invited her in home a child that has no immune system for the first two months. So a very trying time, and it affected me and my wife physically and mentally and spiritually. And to have that live stream, I know we think about some, that as being for members, but it's also it's a community resource. And it was a lifeline for us. And there was times that I couldn't be here, or maybe I was at work because I worked a lot of weekends then. Um, I would turn it on my phone, and in between caring for patients, I would watch. And some of the people weren't even converts. They would come over and watch as well. And so they were getting to hear the gospel. And uh, it's just, it was an amazing resource that I knew that no matter what I, where I was or what I was doing, uh, even though I couldn't be under the same building with uh, my fellow church members, we could lift up our hearts and worship God. And so that's a, that's a community resource. That's a way of showing brotherly love. I think of those, uh, that made me also more empathetic to those that are sick and can't be here too. And I know a lot of them uh, look at our live stream. I know my brother, he has people in his church. He lives up in Maryland. They like to look in on our live stream too. So we never know the good we're doing in the community by making that resource available. So that's some examples of brotherly love and some ways that we have uh, affected our community. And I, I do like that we always have in our budget as well from last week uh, ways and money set aside that we can be an outreach to our community. So another example of brotherly love I want to tell you guys about. I read, it was an amazing story. It took place in the early church. There was a great plague that was rampant in Alexandria during the reign of Gallienus. That panic quickly spread, and we, we kind of know how that is. We've lived through that. And the affected in this city were driven out, had no resources for medical care. The Alexandrian Christians acted in stark contrast to this with the treatment of the afflicted. The bishop in that town described their actions. This is a quote from him. The Christians, in the abundance of their brotherly love, did not spare themselves, but mutually attended each other. They would visit the sick without fear, and ministering to each other for the sake of Christ, cheerfully gave up their lives with them. Many died after their care had restored the others to health. Many who took the bodies of the Christian brethren into their hands and bosoms and closed their eyes and buried them with every mark of attention soon followed them in death. Quote. That's, that's an amazing story of, of Christian love. So in our time showing the love of Christ to those we encounter in our day-to-day activities, it's a good example of how a Christian should interact with the world, and this will many times open the door to share the gospel. As I said before, just turning on that live stream and everybody wanted to, everybody wanted to see. They couldn't believe churches are meeting, and they would they would get interested and they would listen. And I would turn it up, and they would they would get to hear the gospel. And at the end of verse two, cautions you may be ministering to messengers from God. Does anybody does that give you any examples you can think of just right off the bat of, of this happening in Scripture? I know there's a few famous stories. Uh, I immediately thought of Genesis 18. So remember Abraham, he ministered to three strangers, and of course that's in quotes because they weren't strangers, but they were to him at the time. He gave them food and water and he washed their feet. These messengers of God then proceeded to tell him that he would be a father. Well, if you know Abraham, him and his wife were very old, and that that was a shocking revelation. This brought about a famous chuckle from Sarah. Of course, the messengers heard that, and she denied it, and then she had to own up to it. But that laughter resulted in the name of their son. And through Abraham and his son and lineage, God established a people unto himself. And then as you go on through that chapter, I won't get into this example, but uh, Lot also had, quote, visitors that were also angels. So it does happen. So that's something to think about. I don't know if that's ever happened to me personally, but it could have. So that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. You never know who that person is that asks you for help is. Before we move on from, from the brotherly love portion of this, I just wanted to give you this. Have any y'all ever read any of John Owen, Puritan? Uh, theologian. I'm really not smart enough to be reading his stuff, but uh, I like to read it anyway. Uh, Just something to take from this. He warns of some reasons that brotherly love may start to wane. Reasons include self-love and love of the present world. You know, we're torn between two places, as Paul said. Lust in the hearts of men and also the ignorance of the true nature of grace. So the phrase, let brotherly love continue, is not only a command, but it's a challenge to all of us to fight against our selfish pursuits that rob us of our concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we'll move on to to verse number three. It says, remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So I know that meant something different then than it does now, but we do have Christians that are imprisoned all over the world, and we definitely need to remember them. It says, another way for us to manifest brotherly love is to show sympathy for those who suffer. Remembering those in prison is a common theme in the New Testament. So if you go back to Matthew 25, that speaks of the final judgment where the Son of Man sits on his throne and separates the sheep from the goats. Christ states in verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Later in Acts 28, uh, that, that recounts Paul being visited by fellow Christians when he arrived in Rome. And then earlier in Hebrews 10, there's a lot of references back to Hebrews 10, Paul exhorts the Hebrew audience for having compassion on um, those who are in prison. So I know it's hard for us as Christians in the United States right now to put our, put our mind in what those Christians were facing. We may not face that same persecution yet here, but it may be coming, as those that did in the first century. But we still have an obligation to care for those imprisoned believers, both here and abroad. Although we may still enjoy the blessings of religious freedom here in the U.S., many Christians throughout the world right now are facing horrific persecution just for meeting as we did this morning in in peace and liberty. So may this verse renew our compassion and dedication to pray for those that are persecuted, our fellow brothers in Christ. Also, even though it's not mentioned in this, it's a good thing to remember. Uh, We do need to minister to the non-believers that are in prison as well. Um, I saw this statistic a while back, and I, I looked at it again just to verify it. And it is correct. Um, This may be shocking to some people, but in the United States, we lead uh, the entire world in the number of incarcerated prisoners. Although we barely make up 5% of the the world population, we represent almost 25% of all those incarcerated prisoners. So what that means to us is we have our own mission field here, and it is the prison population. So while we are, according to verse 3, to remember those believers that are in prison, and I know that was a big thing in his day, Let's also remember those non-believers and those ministries that are reaching out and sharing the gospel to those that are imprisoned. So the second part of this verse, and this was an interesting part to me because I'm, you know, I was telling you I have a medical background. So what do you believe Paul is referring to in regards to the relationship of the mistreatment of prisoners and the body? You know, we always think about you know, the, the, the body of Christ and things like that, but that, that, was kind of a, that was kind of a new concept to some of those new Christians. They didn't know really how to think about that. Uh, But Paul does instruct us to act as a body when others are mistreated. So to me, just in my line of work, that um, refers to a body's response to trauma. We're talking about caring for those hurting believers. So let's use an example that we can all understand. Everybody in here has stumped your little toe. I think it's probably one of the top five most painful things you can go through. I'm making that up, but it is really bad. (laughs) So that seems to be an isolated event, right? You stumped your little toe, no big deal. But yet, you know why you know it hurts? Because there's a signal sent to your brain and your body, or your brain tells your body, hey, something's going wrong here. So then your body almost immediately starts sending fluid and healing enzymes to try to heal that area. That's what swelling is. So this is a challenge to the body of Christ, to act accordingly when your fellow believer is hurting. Let's help them out. Even if it's the smallest member that's the furthest away, like the little toe. Because if you hurt it, it's going to let you know. So let's take this analogy just a little bit further. Um, I know we have some kids here. They may have not experienced this, but most of us adults have experienced being burned, touching something that's hot. Well, the signal first sent from the brain is not to go heal that spot. It's to make you recall. If you think about it, I bet there's been times where you pull back from something that burns you even before you even realize it's burning you. That's how quick this happens. So if you think about that, that, that also could represent us as a church. Because when we, can, when we attend to a congregational member that's hurting, we're protecting the entire body, just like in this instance. It's pulling back from something that's burning because it doesn't, want you to, it doesn't want further damage to be inflicted. So that's another application I think we can think about too, is we're protecting our body as a whole when we protect and minister to our most vulnerable and hurting. So these first three verses we've talked about in Hebrews, you can kind of just sum them up as love is selfless. I know my wife likes outlines. I'm not real good at doing them, but Danny is great at them, and she appreciates that, Danny. (laughs) So love is selfless. That's pretty much how you can sum that up. So let's look at this next verse. Uh, We're definitely going to take a little bit of a different direction here, but there is a theme. So let, let marriage be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So why do you think Paul transitioned from brotherly love within the church body To marriage, So I believe Paul is instructing to honor marriage because of how important the marriage relationship is to the church. Strong marriages lead to strong families. And when brought together with other strong families that have strong marriages, you have a strong church. And that's all the more reason for Satan to fight the marriage because it tears away at the strength of the church because the church is obviously, we are one body, but we're also made up of individual families. The church also makes up the most precious object of Christ's affection, His bride. So that's a reason for Satan to fight against it. Another reason marriage should be honored is because of what it represents. We're instructed in Ephesians five twenty five, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave Himself up for her. As inadequate as us men and also women are at keeping um, with the commands that are in this chapter, our marriages, even though they're imperfect, they're still symbolic of Christ and His bride, and it still portrays that to the world. Paul understood that because marriage itself is a symbol to the the world of Christ's love for his people. And that strong biblical marriages strengthen the church. Satan has every motivation to undermine the marriage because erosion of a healthy marriage will weaken the church. But Paul just doesn't stop about, or he doesn't just stop with telling you to honor marriage. He goes on and mentions uh, the sin of adultery and that it will be judged. So although this verse keeps with the theme of love in the church, you know, we've talked about brotherly love and how it's selfless and how it's a sign of a Christian, verse 4 is placing boundaries on love where the other verses will extend it. So this verse is simple and straightforward, and we can all understand it. Honor your marriage and the marriage of others in the church. Do not break the vows of marriage, or God will judge that behavior. I know we all have different besetting sins that we struggle with and are tempted by, but adultery... Per the scriptures is especially horrendous in the sight of God, and it must be um, guarded against. It's not only a violation of a solemn oath that we took before God and before the witnesses that were at the ceremony, but as we said before, it's a perversion of what marriage is supposed to signify, the relationship of Christ and his bride. I know there are Christians out there that have struggled with this sin, and we know, per Romans 8.1, that you're promised forgiveness if you're repentant, and there are no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul also warns back in Hebrews 10 again, this is verse 26, that if we deliberately continue in sin, and this is any sin, not just this one, after the knowledge of the truth, that the offender is most likely not a true believer, and they will bring judgment upon themselves. So Paul is reemphasizing that adultery will be judged. It should be a warning to all those married in the church of how sacred this relationship is to God. So we can sum this verse up by saying, love is faithful. So let's take another turn with Paul. So we've went from brotherly love to marriage, and now we're going to talk about money. So verse 5 and 6, keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I want all fear, what can man do to me? There's a lot in these two verses, so we'll start with the first phrase here. Is there a connection that Paul's trying to make between brotherly love and marriage and greed? It kind of seems like three different things. But Paul is continuing with the previous thought of forbidden love by discussing another temptation that we all either have faced or will face. That's the love or lust towards money. This verse is about making an idol out of wealth. So I'm sure many of you are thinking about uh, the passage about the rich young ruler that is in Mark 10. That's what first came to my mind when I was reading this. So in this instance, money became an idol to this rich young ruler, and it kept him from following Christ. <clears throat> it was the stumbling block that kept him from true faith in Christ. Money became his God and caused him to reject God. This principle was expounded upon by Jesus in Luke sixteen thirteen, when he stated, you cannot serve two masters, God and money. I found an interesting quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure most of you probably know him. He said that covetousness is actually the vilest of all the vices we have. He said, because it's the opposite of God's nature, because he is merciful, full of grace and love. So as we come on down the verse, there's a phrase, be content with what you have. This reminded me, and maybe some of you, of Exodus 20 and the Decalogue, particularly those commandments against other gods and stealing and coveting. But having a love for money is often a symptom of another sin, as this verse states. It's a lack of contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the gain we should be going towards, not monetarily. To continue that verse, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing, with these we will be content. So then the end of this verse says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that related to money? That seems almost like a phrase that's a little bit out of of place. But in this portion of verse 5, Paul is actually, and I didn't realize this until I was studying this chapter, he's actually quoting Joshua 1.5. In Joshua 1, God has just revealed to Joshua that Moses was dead and was commanding him to lead his people into the promised land to take what God had, had promised them. I've never taught Sunday school, so I kind of felt a little bit like Joshua. <laughs> and then he asked me to do this. But okay, Lord, this is, this is the opportunity. This is what you want me to do. So. But Paul is telling his audience that as Joshua trusted God to provide, so can, so can they. If we know the righteous are never forsaken and the animals do not worry about their next meal, then we must avoid worrying about our finances, as this shows a lack of faith. If we are to avoid greed and worry. We need to work hard and save for tough times and give out of our abundance. But always trust in God and cling to his promises to provide for his people. So in verse 6, Paul reverts back to the Old Testament to emphasize his point, hereby stating Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you go back and study that psalm, that deepens the meaning of this verse for you significantly. Because Psalm 118 is not about finances, which we already discussed. That's not a thing we should worry about. This is, this is talking about, especially in verse 5, about God's enduring love, his protection, his strength, and his salvation. So if these supernatural gifts that we, we, we ask God for and we know he's going to provide for us are promised out of God's providence, we have no need or right to worry about any material things. Let's look at verse 7. So if we have any leaders in here, elders or deacons, I know verse 7 and then we'll get on to 17 are some, some uh, pretty tough verses for you. I know as we were going through our training, this is one of the first things that Mike had us to read out of this chapter. So verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, considering the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So here Paul's talking about speaking the word of God. It's of the utmost importance to Paul. It is his life's work. But he also addresses it very often. Verse 7 is one of two verses, as I just said, that we're going to deal with people that are teaching the Word. What do you think Paul means when he refers to those who speak the Word of God? That, of course, can be preaching and teaching. A lot of the commentators that I looked at that were talking about this verse also believe that he's not only talking about that, but he's referring to those that are giving doctrinal instruction. So that's how important this is to him as well. Because back in Hebrews 6, Paul challenges his audience to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and move on to more weighty theology. And then here in verse 7, he's referring to those who will be instructing the congregation in these doctrines. So I was saying that these are tough verses for elders or deacons, but yeah, he's talking to uh, the people that are under them. But here he actually has a secondary audience, and we'll see that in, in chapter 17 as well. In our modern vocabulary, we might would say that Paul's being a little passive aggressive because he's really talking to this group over here while addressing this one. By this, what I mean is he's addressing the audience of the Hebrews, but he's really challenging their leaders. Paul is calling the leaders to live such a life that its very outcome is a confirmation of their teaching, and that their faith should be such that it is an example to be followed and imitated by others. That is that is a weighty thing to to consider paul's letter to titus he expounds on this in the chapter 2 verse 7 and 8 he says show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us so this verse it's really a prayer to anyone that's in those positions Uh, I know as I stand before you today, it's mine, and I'm sure anyone that stands and teaches or preaches in the future feels the same way. Uh, We want to be a good example, be honest to God's word, and always be doctrinally sound in anything we say in front of the congregation, whether it be corporately or privately. And to those who sit under that teaching and preaching, listen intently, be Bereans and search out the gospel that is being taught. For if you're supposed to follow and emulate the lives of those who speak God's word to you, you must ensure that what you're teaching is scripturally sound. So that's your responsibility as well. It's not just on the leaders. And so for those church leaders we have in here, you get a little break till we get to 17, and then it gets a little worse. So let's move on to something, something a little better here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 8 is not only a great transition from a very convicting passage to us all, but it's one of the greatest truths we find in all of Scripture. This is a theme seen throughout both Testaments of Scripture. I did just a quick search of this and found over a 100 verses about God always being the same, staying the same, or his, Him being eternal. I'll give you just a few of them that really stood out. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Revelations 1.8 states, I am the Alpha and Omega, say the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And lastly, Psalm ninety, verse two: Before the mountains were were brought forth, and even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But this is kind of a disjointed statement. We were just talking about elders and the, the responsibility of the congregation. How does this fit within here? By the way, just a side note, I was reading after this commentator, and he was talking about how for the first several years he studied Hebrews, he thought this was the most disjointed chapter he'd ever read. It just was kind of a hodgepodge, and he finally started seeing some themes. So I'm like, all right, I, I can sympathize with that. So here's how this all goes together, though. Some commentators think this verse refers to some previous passages in Hebrews about Jesus being the same yesterday and today. Hebrews 1, 2 through 4, Hebrews 4 through 7. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 7, I should say, are some that come to mind. Also Hebrews ten twelve, But when Christ had offered for all things a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So this verse affirms to us that Christ alone is worthy of his position as a high priest and the son of God because he is unchanging and everlasting. But I believe there is an application back to, to uh, verse 7, not just through the chapter. We're taught to follow the examples of our leaders. Yet only leaders that are following Christ can meet that criterion. Christ is our unchanging rock. He's our immutable hope and he's our firm foundation that we and our leaders can all trust. Also, leaders will pass from the scene, but God is unchanging and he's going to continue to raise leaders who will provide sound teaching and examples for all of us to follow. So let verse 7 and 8 remind us to be frequently praying for our leaders as well as putting our hope and faith in an unchanging Christ. So let's look at uh, verse 9 through 11. This kind of goes along with the theme of teaching. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So what is our relationship of verse 8 to verse 9? Well, verse 9 here is warning the audience about being led astray by false teachers and doctrines. As stated back in verse 8, Christ is everlasting and he's unchanging. We know from John one one that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was with God. So God and his Word are everlasting. With this assurance that the triune God is unchanging and that his Word was with him in the beginning, we can rest assured his Word is also unchanging. Therefore, any teaching that de- deviates from God's Word and sound doctrine, we must not entertain. This is also a challenge, as before in the other verse, to search out the scriptures for ourselves. We have to know sound biblical doctrine to be able to identify false, false teachers and their doctrines. So right in the middle of this verse, Paul starts talking about food. Some of y'all might be thinking about that right now. <laughs> as for the reference for food, what is he talking about? Well, he is once again emphasizing that Christ is better than the old sacrificial institution in every way. And we were talking about that as we started. The Special ceremonial food no longer holds any spiritual benefit. And the Christian altar is better than the food of the tabernacle. I mentioned John Owen earlier. He was talking about this when he was uh, commentating this verse. And he said that the food referred to the food offered on the altars in the Jewish religion. To render that food offering of no benefit was to render that altar and that entire sacrificial system of no benefit as well. So Hebrews, in a way, is very controversial when you think about that. His his audience, you know, they were following Christ, and then they were going through this persecution, and they are thinking about going back to the old ways. And Paul here is saying that that's passed away. That is of no good. It's of no value to you. Follow Christ. Verse 11, uh, we're not going to touch on that, really, because we're going to go into that in depth once we move on. But it's referring to the high priest taking flesh and skin and dung of the animals, sacrificing the day of atonement outside the city of the burn. So we're going to get into that here, in 12, verse 12 through 15. So I'll read that. So Jesus also suffering outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we were just talking about how Christ is better. Here we're talking about how, how Christ is better than the former high priests. In the rest of Hebrews, Paul states that Christ is better, and this is the theme here in verse twelve, the high priest, after placing the blood on the altar, had to take the rest of the carcass outside the city gates to burn. That burnt flesh was a sin offering. It was loathsome in God's sight. Christ, who is a more excellent high priest and sacrifice, went to the place of those sacrificial animals, Golgotha. That was outside the gates of Jerusalem, which is symbolic here when we see in the old sacrificial system. Christ became that loathsome sacrifice for us by taking upon himself our sin. But unlike that bull that the high priest took out, his blood provided atonement and forgiveness and rendered his people redeemed. I mentioned C.H. Spurgeon earlier. He has such great quotes in his commentary on this. I wanted to throw one more in here about this verse. He says, When he was delivered into the hands of the Romans, they did not have a place of execution within the city, but one outside the camp, that by dying outside the gate, he might be proven to be a sin offering for his people. So, where that previous verse we just talked about could be a little confusing, you know, why is he talking about food? Why are we talking about going outside the gate? It makes perfect sense. He's fulfilling that prophecy as they took took the sacrifice. The blood stayed inside on the altar, they took it outside. Christ went outside to prove that He is He is the true and final sacrifice for us. We're also in this verse we're challenged um, to bear Christ's reproach. First John two twenty eight says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame in shame at his coming. Previously in verse six of this chapter, John instructed that one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. First Peter hits on this topic. He reminds us that as Christ suffered, we are also to follow his example. And then finally in 1 Corinthians 11, we're challenged to be imitators of Christ. So for us to fulfill this, we are to identify in Christ's reproach as much as we do in his triumphant resurrection. That's, a, that's another reason why I think that our Good Friday service is so important uh, the resurrection is something that we, we take great joy in, and we should. We should thank God for it, but we should always set aside a little time to bear Christ's reproach. That's, that was my thought when I read through this. I was like, I feel like that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking time to bear Christ's reproach. Some commentators have even suggested that that verse is the main topic of the entire chapter 13 of Hebrews. We are called to go outside that camp and identify with Christ's reproach leaving behind the world system and practices. Some think Paul may be actually recalling Christ's words here as well back in Matthew 16 when he commands those who want to follow him to deny themselves and take up their cross. That's something to think about. Christ went outside the gate with his cross, and he's telling his followers to take up their cross. Another application is uh, Jerusalem was the center of Judaism. The audience in the Hebrews must go outside their former religion and embrace Christ as their true messiah. This one's a little different. Uh, others have also suggested that the verse uh, refers in some way to partaking in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and others say that they think this is a stretch. So I know that mike he wears a lot of hats here, and he's our resident expert on the sacraments. So that'd be a great question to hit him with right when he comes home. It's like, do you think this has anything to do with the Lord's Supper? I don't have anything for you, but Mike may. <laughs> so Paul emphasizes here in verse 14 that Christians will always be sojourners in this world. Never putting down roots and always longing for our heavenly destination. That's also a topic that Paul has revisited many times, and I'm, I'm sure he was he was that way. I know he expounds and talks about how he's torn between the two because he cares for his his uh, his fellow Jews and he cares about his mission work, but he's also facing so much persecution that he wants to go home to his father. So I definitely can can understand where he's coming from, and we're the same way. We're so tied to this world; our family's here. Our life's works here, our church is here, but yet there's always something in us that is longing to go home and be with Christ. This sentiment was echoed elsewhere in the New Testament, In 2 Peter 3.13. It says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So even though, as I said, we are tied here in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of things we enjoy here, um, our heart always longs to, to go experience heaven and be with our Redeemer. Verse 15 shows another way that Christ is better than the old sacrificial system. Instead of having a high priest offer up sacrifices once a year on our behalf, we are to constantly lift up our praise to God as an acceptable sacrifice. The phrase continually reminds us that praise to God is to be our sacrifice in all circumstances, not just worship or seasons of victory that we have in our lives. Verse 15 also restates back in chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, This says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this passage, we need to remember that Christ's sacrifice is better. But here we're going to make an interesting transition. We've been talking about through the book of Hebrews is Christ's sacrifice. Now we're going to talk about what is our sacrifice as Christians. Verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We've already been given some examples of sacrifices that are pleasing to God here in this chapter brotherly love, love for strangers, and also now we're seeing our praise to God as a sacrifice. Until I was studying this chapter, I'd never thought of this, and maybe you have, but if you ever thought about how your good works and service to others is a sacrifice, I always think of it as a good work that's pleasing to God. I never think of it as me making a sacrifice. When you think about that, though, it becomes more of an honor than a duty to actually sacrifice for God by, by doing good works. So this equates the sacrifice of service with the sacrifice of worship. So by helping others in doing good works, it's actually a form of worship to God that we find here in Hebrews 13 is pleasing to him. So verse 16, this wraps up our section about sacrifices. We're going to move on to a few different topics before we wrap this chapter up. As I mentioned earlier, Some believe this sums up the point of this entire chapter, so we're going to review it. Christ became the more excellent high priest and sacrifice and went to Calvary to atone for the sins of his people. Unlike the priest, we are to go outside the gate to bear the reproach of Christ and his sacrifice. We're to offer our own sacrifices through continual worship and good deeds to others. These sacrifices, according to verse 16, are pleasing to God. So remember that your worship and good works are sacrifices that God is pleased with. So right, we're back to, back to the leaders now. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's a question. Is obedience to leadership against our human nature? Is that something we just naturally Do not want to do. Romans five nineteen says that by one man's obedience we are all made. Excuse me, one man's disobedience we are all made sinners. Ephesians two says that Satan is at work through the disobedience of man. And Ephesians five six says that the disobedient man is subject to the wrath of God. So it all comes full circle here. We see that we have all fallen because of man's disobedience, and then Satan works through that. That's his medium to sow disobedience uh, in man. And then that disobedience brings about wrath of God. So it is natural. In our natural state, we do not want to be obedient to any of our leaders. Do some of our backgrounds maybe make us that way? I'll tell you a quick uh, little history of me, both both sides. Uh, I know you all grew up near so You've probably heard of the Waldensian people, right? The Waldenses. If you haven't, there were a group of Orthodox Christians that were persecuted and almost annihilated by the Roman church. They lived, they fled up into the Cochin Alps, uh, for about 200 years, and then finally in the 1800s, a papal bull came out that gave them religious freedom, and they got out of there as quick as they could. They went to Canada, went to the United States, went to Argentina. My great-grandfather on my mom's side is a direct descendant of those people. He was actually born in Italy and came over here to uh, New York and then made his way down here. The other side of my family is Scottish. You know how those people like to disobey everyone <laughs> and rebel. Um, I know we have some people in our family that were associated with the Covenanters, if y'all know your Presbyterian history, and there were actually Buchanans that were held there and uh, died at St. Giles. I don't know if I'm a direct descendant or not, but there were some Buchanans, people from our clan. The reason I'm boring you with these stories is disobedience runs in my family on both sides. That's something I fight. I take a lot of pride in my family history. but My family history is disobedience. Think about our country, though. I know there's different levels of patriotism within all of us, but our very country was founded on disobedience. We, we overthrew our own government. But we overthrew a king that had said he, he was a divine right king, which means God put me on the throne and you can't defy, defy me. So we really overthrew their religion as well. We celebrate this every year. Probably, other than our religious holidays, that's our biggest secular holiday. It was 4th of July. What I'm getting at is it's so easy to get caught up in our backgrounds and in our country's history that it, it kind of riles up that disobedience and that pride in it but that is contrary to Scripture. And this is very convicting to me because I told you I have had issues with this in the past. Romans 13, one through 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, ex- that exist have been instituted by God. So that means disobedience to these commands will come with consequences. Verse 3 states, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then later on in Romans thirteen, we get to verse five. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we can make it. We can make excuses. Our government's corrupt. They're using our tax money for things that we we think are sin, and that is true. And we should pray that that God changes uh, that course. But according to Romans thirteen, I, I, I do have to live under that, and I have to be under the authority of my country. But. As we go on, too, we're also talking about here is the authority of the church. To me, that's never been an issue. It's been more the other stuff. I know for some people that may be something that you struggle with. So these statements here to the audience in verse 17 and ultimately the leadership, as you notice, they're much stronger than previously examined in verse 7. Back in verse 7, the church is instructed to remember their leaders, consider their lives, and imitate their faith. But here in verse 17, obedience and submission are not just requested, but they're commanded However, in return for your obedience to your leadership in church and ultimately scripture, there's an added blessing of spiritual care for your soul. So remember we talked about in verse 7, there's really a secondary audience that Paul's really talking to. He's doing the same thing here. So as mentioned in verse 7, the leadership is passively challenged more than the audience. The commandment of obedience and submission by the church to its leaders challenges the leaders to be worthy under shepherds, watching and guiding Christ's flock. The phrase, watch over their souls, is followed by giving an account. This indicates the role of church leader pairs both responsibility with accountability. God institutes authority for our own good. I have to remember that. God has given authority to magistrates to to provide for an orderly and peaceful society. That's true. Authority is given to the husband in the home, but it's attached to the responsibility of providing for and protecting his family. So where there is authority given, there's responsibility and accountability. Likewise, our elders are given authority in the church. But with that uh, responsibility comes more accountability that's required of them because of that authority. So, leadership is also challenged to perform their duties with joy and not complaining or dread. I'm not going to ask our leaders in here if that's a hard thing to do or an easy thing to do. I'm sure it can be challenging sometimes. Because, as me, I'm a member of this congregation. And you, as leaders who guide us, we're all the same, we're all fallible. We're all emotional, we can all be stubborn, and we're all selfish. We have been redeemed, and we're being sanctified, but we remain in our imperfect state as we struggle to emulate Christ. However, the second part of verse 17 suggests a mutual benefit to the scriptural relationship. We'll have harmony in our church. A submissive and obedient congregation is a joy to lead, and a joyous leader is a pleasure to follow, as stated here in verse 17. This relationship is an advantage to us all. Although there are many often quoted passages about the qualifications of leaders in churches, I know Mike went through some of these, I know Peter remembers 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, any of us who are in this role or may be in this role, as me and Peter, of teaching others the scripture, we should read verse 7 and 17, reflect on its commands and pray for strength and guidance to fulfill these responsibilities. These scriptures are also a benefit to the congregation if you ever went to pray and thought, how can I pray for my leaders? Or read the qualifications in the passages previously mentioned and pray that God will grant strength to your leadership to emulate these qualities and to perform their duties according to Scripture. Just about to wrap this up, we're going to look here at verse 18 and 19 and then go on to this benediction. So pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. What an interesting phrase, and I wonder how many times me or maybe others have read over that, where you just kind of skim over, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. That verse reminds me of an experience I had. Uh, when I was in nursing school, I had a lot of little part-time jobs. And one of them, I was a technician in an acute psychiatric uh, unit in a hospital in a neighboring county. And that was an experience, let me tell you. Uh, some of those patients had some very legitimate and... Uh, Very tragic psychiatric conditions. I don't want to belittle any of those. And some of them uh, had addiction issues. And this doesn't apply to all of them. But some of them, because I talked to them directly, um, they told me that the reason they turned to substances was to escape the realities that they found themselves in. Many of their story was they had done terrible things and had terrible things happen to them. And it caused irreparable damages in their relationships with their families. Those no substances were the only form of relief from and helped quell their guilty conscience. So Paul stating that he had a clear conscience. That's one of the most precious things on earth. No medication or self-help book can achieve this for you. The only way to know peace is to know the Prince of Peace. And as Christians, we're challenged here to strive for a clear conscience like Paul by daily confessing our sins, meditating on God's word, and claiming and holding to his promises. Having a clear conscience also refers to not being subject to the accusations of others. First Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Imagine that. Imagine living such a life that we're not susceptible to false accusations because no one around us would believe them. That's a, that's a, that's a weighty challenge for sure. That is definitely something that we want to, to obtain. One point to make about verse 19 before we move on to the end is Paul's request for prayer is that he may be restored to them sooner. This is just a footnote, but that is why, as we mentioned earlier, they believe that not only Paul was the author of Hebrews, but that he knew his audience already because he wanted to be restored to them again, and he may have had some kind of pastoral relationship with them. So we're going to finish with this one of the most beautiful benedictions of all the Bible. I'm sure you've all read it many times and heard it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the covenant equipped you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As in many books and letters in the New Testament, Paul ends the letter to the Hebrews with this benediction that invokes God's blessing on the congregation. It was written to as well as those readers that will come thereafter. Of all the names and descriptions of God listed in the scripture, and there are many, Paul chooses to use the title, God of Peace. Paul invoked the blessing of the God of Peace in other letters as well. He made multiple references to this in Romans, in Philippians, and in 1 Thessalonians. As mentioned before, the peace of God is the only application that can be applied to the short and troubled life of man to achieve a clear conscience. We learned about back in verse 18. Paul then attributes to uh, to the God of Peace the act of bringing Jesus Christ back from the dead. Here Paul is re-emphasizing the power of God previously discussed in Hebrews. Back in Hebrews 5 verse 7, Paul discusses Jesus offering up prayers and supplications to him who is able to save him from death. Then in chapter 7 verse 16, Paul once again compares Christ to Melchizedek, stating that his qualification to become priest was not based on any legal requirement, but by the power of his indestructible life. So in summation of Hebrews, Christ is better in every way. So I told you, this is uh, one way that people put this is just 13 is an exhortation for your journey. So I'm just going to go through those points really quick and we'll be finished. So as Hebrews 13 teaches us, and we have just covered, continue in brotherly love that is selfless and faithful. Let that love portray Christ to the world. Honor your marriage and the marriage of others. Resist greed. Follow and emulate your godly leaders. Forsake the world to follow Christ but keep your focus on heaven. Offer up sacrifices. The sacrifices are your worship, your love, and your good works. Strive to have a clear conscience by being blameless among men. That's all I got, and I think our time is, is finished. So, John Avery, would you mind closing us in prayer?